Hey listeners, it's Kat here. Welcome to another episode of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. Before we jump into this episode, we wanted to share some exciting news. Raw Talk is going live. Join us May 30th at JLabs Toronto for a live podcast event. We'll be sitting down with a panel of experts to talk about how we can have better science through better public engagement. We'd love for you to come out, meet the team, and join in on the discussion on how science can be made more accessible for everyone. Head over to rawtalklive.com to register. Now, for this week's episode, I sat down with Dr. Chung-Wai Chow, respirologist and scientist at the Toronto General Hospital, and associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine, the Dalalana School of Public Health, and the Faculty of Applied Sciences and Engineering at the University of Toronto. Dr. Chow's work focuses on the health effects of air pollution at both a clinical and cellular level. In this episode, we chat about the wide range of techniques Dr. Chow's lab uses to assess the impact of environmental air pollution on our health, the importance of collaboration in science, and the role her mentors played in getting her to where she is today. So, let's get into it. Before we get into maybe the specifics of your research, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the health impacts of air pollution. We all know that it's bad for our health, it's bad for the environment, but what are really the implications when it comes down to respiratory health or your health in general? Well, I think that we, overall, air pollution is actually one of the biggest burdens in terms of health to, to the entire world. And, uh, you know, the WHO has already has published findings to suggest that it is responsible for something like three million premature deaths annually as a result of exposure to air pollution. And in Canada and in North America, we are very fortunate that we live with very good air quality. But despite that, we are still impacted significantly by the health impacts of uh, air pollution. And for us in Canada, what we talk about in terms of air pollution is pollution from primarily from cars, vehicular emissions, Mm -hmm. but we're also impacted by a lot of global events or even internal events. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the 2016 uh, Fort McMurray wildfires affected not just the local environment, but because air pollution travels downwind, Mm -hmm. um, it affects several, you know, communities thousands of kilometers away. And in fact, there was a pollution advisory that was uh, sent in Connecticut that could be traced back directly to the Alberta wildfires. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we should always be ever vigilant. We we coexist, obviously, Mm -hmm. with all the things that produce uh, pollution. And there's always a balance that has to be made. But I think we, in Canada, we need to, and for for me in particular, is to look at what the implications are in terms of what actually causes air pollution, you know, what causes air pollution, uh, what are the impact in terms of the short term as Mm -hmm. well as long term on the health of the population. Mm -hmm. So what, what are those impacts on lung health? There's a lot of very good data that has shown that in terms of lung health, that it is responsible for worsening existing diseases. We're talking about asthma, COPD, as well as cystic fibrosis. And there has been publications uh, arising from our group that shows that air pollution has an impact on terms of long-term outcomes Mm -hmm. in lung transplant patients. And there are a number of studies now looking at healthy people Mm -hmm. to show that there's a decrease in lung function over time as a result of chronic exposure to air pollution. Mm -hmm. 
And, and lung function uh, really is very much a metric of functional capacity mm-hmm. and has been shown that over time that if you, your lung function drops below a certain amount, it has a real functional impact in terms of your ability mm-hmm. to carry out your activities of daily living, your quality of life, and, and obviously, you know, mortality. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the 2016 forest fires at Fort McMurray, and you actually recently just returned from Alberta, where uh, you are conducting a study looking at some of the health effects of exposure to forest fires. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what that project entails and where it's going and how it's yeah. going so far? Yeah, there there have been a lot of studies in the past that have looked at the health impacts of uh, wildfires. A lot of them have really looked at it in terms of the short term, and much of it is looking at health databases and looking at the health administration databases, looking at the emergency room visits, physicianal, um, you know, visits and questionnaires that are sent to the community to, mm-hmm. to ask about symptoms. And what was quite unusual about the, uh, you know, wildfires in, in Alberta was the fact that um, it affected the entire town. You know, 88,000 people were evacuated. It is also 450 kilometers isolated from any other major city. And the other sort of aspect of that wildfire is the fact that it mostly affects young, healthy Canadians who were attracted there and established families there because mm-hmm. of the economy. And so the, the question that our team, uh, my research team, is looking at is looking at what the long-term the longitudinal impact is for mm-hmm. people who uh, live in a community that was affected by the fires. There are residual pollutants, ash, other toxins that are you know, in the atmosphere, on the ground, and whether or not that actually has any long-term impact. The other aspect of the team, and I collaborate with a chemical engineer, mm-hmm. is that we are looking specifically at the indoor air pollutants of the homes in Fort McMurray mm-hmm. to see how long mm-hmm. outdoor air pollution that gets tracked indoors and how, and how long the ash from the fires actually stay indoors mm-hmm. and whether or not those pollutants actually change over time and whether mm-hmm. or not those they, they're toxic. And uh, what stage of this project are you at now? So we've enrolled our first 45 uh, participants. Mm-hmm. Um, I just came back in, uh, in the middle of February, and we will be back uh, in early April to mm-hmm. enroll another, you know, our next set and also to follow these participants. So what we're doing is we're following a lot of these participants, all the participants with l- lung function over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're conducting spirometry. We're also conducting and collecting uh, samples from breath, from urine, and mm-hmm. cell phone wipes um, mm-hmm. to look at what the exposures are over time. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we have some preliminary sort of data from that. We call it the home dust sampling team. This is the uh, <laughs> chemical engineering team that is sampling the homes. We've conducted 85 home samples, and we've been very fortunate that we've been welcomed into the homes of a lot of the Fort McMurray residents. And they've also started some preliminary analysis in the dust samples. Mm-hmm. And we are, I'm back in April, they'll be back uh, with us in July for mm-hmm. another large sampling campaign. The community obviously is very engaged, they're obviously mm-hmm. concerned. So we've had a lot of a huge enthusiastic response from the community. Mm-hmm. How did this project come about? You said that there's a lot of collaboration with engineers uh, at U of T. 
and this is happening all the way in Alberta. So where did the idea for this kind of study come from? Well, Arthur Chan, who is the engineer, and I have been collaborating for quite some time. Mm-hmm. We are both very much of our lab, both of our labs are very much focused on some of the f- very fundamental science behind air pollution. And mm-hmm. he and I had been collaborating for a couple of years now, looking at secondary organic aerosols. So these are the pollutants that are in the atmosphere mm-hmm. that are chemically changed by transit in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so we've been doing studies using animal models, we've been doing studies using cell lines and he's also been developing a model of actually developing an atmospheric chamber that mm-hmm. um, simulates what happens you know in the outside atmosphere and so we we have been doing a lot of this mm-hmm. um, together for some time and then right after the wildfires a request for applications came out and when we looked at it we said my goodness this is exactly like what we do you know we were at that time looking at mostly vehicular exhaust and looking at sort of how that changes over time we sort of thought well we would be crazy if we didn't actually Mm -hmm. you know submit an application for this because um, everything that we want to do is exactly what is mirrored and Mm -hmm. so we were very fortunate we 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 got that grant Mm -hmm. and I also applied for a second grant that allowed me to sort of initiate the health study and it's like any um, other sort of research team, when you find good collaborators mm-hmm. who really truly complement each other because we do different things, but with a similar goal, mm-hmm. it really works very well. And Arthur's team and my team have been out together in Fort McMurray twice. Mm-hmm. We, you know, work together. We actually end up living together. <laughs> uh, and, and it's been a really wonderful collaboration. Mm-hmm. And when I initially brought forth the idea to the people I work with and invited them to come out Mm -hmm. to Fort McMurray, particularly in the winter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wasn't sure that I was going to get very much of a response. And, uh, but, you know, the team was very enthusiastic. And before we left Fort McMurray, February, I knew that I had some dates Mm -hmm. uh, already to go back and Without my even asking, they all volunteered. So, I'm available, <laughs> and, and I think it really yeah. speaks very well of both the the research because it's interesting. It speaks very well of the team, mm-hmm. and it also speaks very well of the the people of Fort McMurray mm-hmm. uh, because I think the you know I'm also a physician, yeah. uh, and so what I do. Uh, always has to have a human application, mm-hmm. and obviously it's it's a lot easier um, and it becomes much more uh, poignant perhaps to to work with people who are really engaged in what's happening and wanting to be part of your research mm-hmm. question and your research endeavor mm-hmm. because they're invested in it mm-hmm. and and I think mm-hmm. that we saw that um, yeah. when we were in Fort McMurray and it dispelled a lot of um, you know sort of ideas of what it's like uh, to be living in the northern town too yeah <laughs> it sounds like an incredibly fortunate and fruitful partnership that you have. And um, I think it's always really great to have participants who seem just as invested in the work as you are. Hi, Raw Talk listeners. It's Maria. And for this segment, I really wanted to have a conversation with students across the University of Toronto about perceptions and thoughts regarding air pollution. I talked with students within departments including medicine, engineering, immunology, and even talked to a student visiting from Queen's University who was just in Toronto for the week. 
So I first wanted to see how students felt Canada compared with the rest of the world in terms of air pollution, and specifically how Toronto compared with the rest of Canada. Hi, I'm, I'm third year double majoring physiology immunology. I am from the Islamic Republic of Iran. So how do you think Toronto compares in terms of pollution with other cities around the world? Well, I think the weather's pretty uh, clean compared to where I come from. They control it pretty well. I'm not really that into it, but I think it's, it's okay. It's not that bad. So where are you from? Well, I, I, I come from the capital there, and it's really, and really, really polluted. And on, on some days, you can just look at the, uh, the weather, and it's, it's just black. It's, that's how bad it is. I come directly from Kingston to Toronto in like a span of three hours, so I guess the comparison is pretty stark. I think mostly though what I notice is just the lack of greenery and like I don't know if that makes me more aware of the poor air quality here or the pollution or if that's just something I associate with more pollution is like more concrete and less less yeah like foliage but I think that's what everyone notices when they come to Toronto. Yeah I think it's polluted for sure and I know especially in since I go to the Mississauga campus for U of T and when I commute during rush hour, just the traffic and the smoke and the, the kind of haziness in the air on the gardener during rush hour is crazy when you're just standing there and you actually feel it in the air and you see like a layer of smoke. So I think it's definitely an issue in Toronto. The air pollution in Iran is like pretty bad, so like uh, compared to that, Toronto's pretty good, but maybe compared to other North American cities, maybe it's not as good, so I don't know if like it's as good as maybe Vancouver or like Calgary. So hearing everyone's responses, it's clear that Canada, in relation to the rest of the world, is not so bad. We had two students from Iran that mentioned the significant difference in air quality between Iran and Canada. And in fact, when I did a little bit of research, I found that the city with the highest pollution exposure in the world is Abal, Iran, with approximately 270 micrograms of pollution per cubic meter. Now, just to give you some background, this is 20 times greater than what the World Health Organization considers healthy. And one of the reasons for such high rates of pollution in the city is due to wetlands that are drying out and subsequent large amounts of dust in the air. Now, we had some students that mentioned how Toronto is particularly polluted. So this brought me to investigate how much pollution we're actually exposed to in Toronto on a daily basis. And interestingly, Toronto, due to its large population density and urban design, has a 1.3 times greater exposure rate than the national average in Canada, which is about 7.05 micrograms of pollution per cubic meter. So although pollution exposure in Canada is not as bad as the rest of the world, we too are exposed to large amounts in our daily lives. And so this brought me to my next question where I wanted to see what students thought about the way that pollution actually affects our overall health. The real challenge with pollution and its effect on health is that a lot of the effects are, are chronic and, and are only seen far down the road. And it's difficult to study that kind of relationship. So um, the public's not incentivized to take action against that, which, which makes it difficult. 
Absolutely. And in fact, air pollution can increase risks for asthma and other respiratory diseases, as well as risk for heart disease and cancer, particularly in children, the elderly, and those with pre existing medical conditions. So clearly, there's this huge effect on health. And something that came up during our conversation was that as a society, we're not really incentivized to deal with pollution related negative consequences. And so I wanted to delve a bit deeper and ask how can we increase awareness of this issue and incentivize students to take action? Yeah, increasing research and and if we had a better idea of what those downstream effects were, um, you know, let's say you had a family member that, that suffered some disease that was very clearly attributable to pollution, um, I think, you know, that, that might motivate people if there was some sort of case that came out of a person that, that really was relatable to the public, that might be something um, that I could see a lot of people rallying around. But again, it's, it's tough. I can't think of any. How do you think we can increase awareness about pollution in general? And how do we make it exciting for the everyday student that might not find it as interesting? Definitely, I feel like social media would be a really good platform because, you know, there's Instagram, there's Twitter. If they put out more, like, celebrities on it, I feel like a lot of people, it would be more aware of the issue and, like, how to change it. Yeah, I'm not sure as a student how much air pollution I actually cause, so I think some if I had more awareness on that, I could actually reduce things that I unknowingly do because we don't drive, we take public transit regardless. Um... Yeah, it's really hard to say. I guess like even the plastic products and stuff that we buy, if we buy things with more packaging, we know it has caused air pollution while being produced and packaged. So I would try to reduce that in the future, but it's not something that I advocate towards right now or that I'm actively trying to reduce my carbon footprint. I would, yeah, I would say... Um, particularly for students, I know so many people are really invested in like building up their resume and kind of looking towards the future and things that'll help them get jobs. So I think if maybe there was more awareness about how important environmental issues have become in like the actual business world and in government and politics, they might be more invested in spending time curating like those initiatives and those skills, knowing that it'll help them get a job or experience in the future. Um, Because I think a lot of people assume it's more of like a hobby to pursue these initiatives rather than a true concrete plan for the future. So that's what I would say. From our conversation, there seems to be a lot that we can still do to raise awareness, especially within our local community. On my end, I know as a graduate student, air pollution is something that I don't really think about on a daily basis. I have a long commute and oftentimes convenience trumps what is best for the environment. As someone mentioned in our conversation earlier, direct effects of air pollution can be sometimes hard to track and can be chronic, so not seeing these effects right away can cloud the issue. This is precisely why I think research in this field is of particular importance and value because it gives a quantifiable number to these effects. So what can you do to make an impact? One way is to conserve energy, to remember to turn off lights, computers, and electrical appliances when not in use. Whenever possible, carpool, ride a bike, and or walk. And lastly, get informed with the issues at hand. All right, let's get back to the main discussion. 
And, you know, you did mention that you're a physician and so you are a clinician scientist. You both hold a medical degree and a PhD. Is this the kind of work that you're doing now? Is this something that you've always wanted to do to dabble in both worlds of research and clinical care? Very much, very much. I mean, the um, one of the things that I knew going into medical school was that I didn't just want to be a practicing physician. I mean, there and there's nothing, you know, there are a lot of people who do that, mm-hmm. but I knew that this is not what I wanted to do. And I wanted to, you know, being a physician is looking after people and making sure that they, you know, they, they continue to live fruitful and good lives. Um, but I think the other part of me was, you know, I needed to understand what causes diseases and what it is and, uh, and how can we prevent disease. Mm-hmm. And throughout my training um, or my you know, my undergrad and then subsequent graduate years, I looked for Mm -hmm. different opportunities. And it's always a lot easier to sort of rule out the things that you don't like once you've done it. Um, and, and, and then, you know, and then sort of figure out as you sort of do things, what, what it is that you really, really like. And, and I think I've been very fortunate that, you know, I have been able to acquire the skill sets to do both Mm -hmm. and to be able to understand, uh, both worlds really well. Mm-hmm. So was your interest in research something that was sparked as an undergrad? Um, or was it even going back to before that? Oh, I think even before that, I yeah. think my father will tell you that there was nothing that I wasn't interested in <laughs> as a child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any stories from when you were a kid trying to play scientist or anything like that? Not so much, but I, I there are a lot of stories about how I, I, I would try to devise ways of cracking different types of nuts when I was <laughs> anywhere from, you know, trying to ply them open yeah. to, you know, y- y- trying to stomp on them <laughs> using rocks. <to laughs> it's very, very problem solving <laughs> oriented there. Um, so it sounds like you clearly... Um, knew that you wanted to do research. And then I guess my next question is why research and why clinical work in this field of respirology? I think it's uh, it, that that sort of evolved. I became a respirologist because during my medical school training, I had encountered a number of really wonderful respirologists who were mentors in different ways. I mean, not because they had a career path that is sort of what I have su- subsequently done, but because mm. they were so engaged, they were enthusiastic about what they did, they were fabulous teachers, and there was a whole sense of, I think of all the mentors that I've had, the one that I you know, have held in highest esteem are the people who have always maintained their integrity while at the same time you know, conducting their clinical duties and their administrative or their research duties, mm. um, and they have served as inspirations in terms of what I do. That's on a much sort of higher level, but I think on a sort of more granular level, some of these mentors are people whom I've worked with in different research projects, and I've said, oh, you know, this is not the type of research I really liked. (laughs) Um, And so I would, you know, during my training, I sort of went from different types of sort of research Mm -hmm. experiences, from clinical research to basic research Mm -hmm. and to other things. From our previous conversations, it Sounds like you um, had kind of gotten your clinical degree and then went and did a PhD and delved more in depth into the world yeah. of research. And I remember you told me that you um, did a postdoc fellowship at Max Planck in Germany. And there's something that you said that really stuck out. Um, so your PhD was in cell biology, but then in your postdoc, the lab that you went to work 
with uh, was in molecular biology, which for our listeners is very distinct from cell biology. And you did that despite having very little experience in molecular biology. And that just really struck me as something so gutsy to do, to just go and apply for a lab where you know that you're maybe not the most experienced candidate. So what, what was your reasoning behind that decision and what really pushed you to do that? Well, I think for me to be a successful scientist, I need to have sufficient skill sets mm. to understand and know how to ask the questions. And I think we've now evolved to the point that as a PI, I may not know all the methodologies and the details of methodologies that are involved in some of the techniques mm -hmm. that are being used, but I need to understand what the concepts are. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that I will continue mm -hmm. um, to learn new fields, new things, so that I can actually you know, evolve my research. And it's interesting that you thought that it was gutsy Mm -hmm. applying to a postdoc uh, a postdoc in a, a molecular lab actually what what i think uh, mm -hmm. was gutsy was actually mm -hmm. to show up um, <laughs> at Sergio Greenstein's lab mm -hmm. after having finished all my clinical training yeah. and of course at that point i was about 8 years maybe 9 years after my initial mm -hmm. undergrad science mm -hmm. and I didn't even know what an organic and inorganic compound was anymore. <laughs> and and so sort of to, to mm -hmm. sort of walk directly into a pure cell biology lab, mm -hmm. uh, that was for me, that was like mm -hmm. the biggest cultural yeah. um, difference. <laughs> and and I think that if you're never afraid yeah. to learn, if you're never afraid to say I don't know, mm -hmm. but if you know to ask, yeah. then I, I think that for me is like that that defines mm -hmm. what a scientist should be. Yeah. Because if I continue just doing research in the fields that I was trained in 20 mm -hmm. years ago, I don't yeah. think that I would be <laughs> moving the field forward very much. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Sergio Grinstein was your PhD supervisor? Yes. Okay. Uh, what was that experience like being a, a grad student after so many years of clinical training and being in school for seemingly forever? <laughs> it was that in my clinical fellowship in respirology was the happiest time in my life. Really? It was. Yeah. And and I, I will have to say that that was sort of interspersed with a couple of sort of months of feeling like the, 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 the biggest idiot on, on <laughs> in the world when I first started in surgery. I think lab. all grad students were listening. And I mean, I just, I, I mean, I, I felt like, um, you know, Sergio, um, and this is something I've tried to adopt, but Sergio met with all his trainees for an hour every week. Mm hmm and he must have thought he was talking to a stone wall <laughs> for the first year. But it was the happiest, like that, the clinical training mm -hmm. in my fellowship was really happy because I was in a field of medicine I really loved. I had a pretty good idea at that point what I wanted to do in terms of research, not so much mm -hmm. a research area, but I had a mm -hmm. pretty, pretty good idea of sort of what, what field mm -hmm. of research in, in respirology. And then that time in Sergio's lab as a PhD student was completely new. It was all mm -hmm. sorts of different things, different ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. I was now interacting with basic scientists, graduate students, postdocs that were so very different than mm -hmm. the clinical yeah. part of things. It was so exciting. And also at the same time, I now realize this in retrospect, was I had no responsibilities. <laughs> uh, I had no responsibilities to, you know, I now have responsibilities to my students, to my staff, mm. uh, to my patients. 
I had no responsibilities at that time. <laughs> My only responsibility was to, to learn. Yeah. We've, we've had a, a couple of guests who have done a similar thing. They've gone through clinical training and then went back and got a graduate degree. And they've said something along the same lines of they really liked having that protected time. They really liked having just time to learn and absorb mm-hmm. and not be beholden to all these other responsibilities and groups. Mm-hmm. So it is the best time of your life. And everyone keeps telling me, but <laughs> apparently it's really true. <laughs> Being a student is great. So you mentioned that you are always looking to develop new skills and new skill sets, and that's what kind of motivated you to to go to different labs. What kind of new skills have you learned as a PI and through your collaborations with with others, like the engineering group? I I think on on a sort of a broader level, I think the 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 skill sets I've learned is sort of trying to connect dots. Mm-hmm and to look at the possibilities of collaborations in different ways. You know, Arthur Chan and I started collaborating um, through, actually because we we met and we we were talking about what we each did, but we didn't really have a good visual Mm -hmm. of what what it is that we were doing. And so our first collaboration started when, you know, he was describing his atmospheric chamber to me and I had in my mind, you know, thought there was some glass Mm-hmm. bubble and things <laughs> that and um, you know I asked to see it and it turned out that it was a very small apparatus that when I first looked at it I thought well this is something that we could adapt mm-hmm. to an animal exposure system that we had and so mm-hmm. that was how we first yeah. started collaborating and and I think that um, I don't want to speak for him but I think he also uh, really wasn't quite sure what you know, what I did when I talked about doing animal studies and mm-hmm. conducting lung function and mm-hmm. looking at inflammation. And so he came over and yeah. looked at my lab and looked at how we did things. And that was how we, we started. Mm-hmm. I'm beginning to learn, you know, I, I continue to learn, but you know, that there are other people whom I could work with. Mm-hmm. And once you start talking with them, there may be possibilities of mm-hmm. doing things together. The one of the big things that I, I am learning right now is, uh, and this is something that I've not done before, is looking at uh, genomics and genome-wide analysis and what mm-hmm. that really, you know, entails. And and, and, and that, I think, mm-hmm. is, you know, I that will be sort of, for me, the next big mm-hmm. sort of knowledge skill mm-hmm. that I, 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 I'm going to develop and I'm sure that five years from now yeah. there will be another big knowledge skill that I will need to develop in order for me to mm-hmm. understand what I'm doing. Absolutely and it sounds like the more research questions you ask the more maybe new methods um, you need to think mm-hmm. of and develop. So maybe switching gears a little bit and getting a little bit more into the science. How do you study uh, exposure to air pollution in both animal models and with uh, patients or healthy individuals? Animals are obviously a little bit easier um, because we can control for what we do. And I mentioned the fact that uh, Arthur Chen and I, you know, have developed this Mm. atmospheric simulation uh, chamber that we can expose mice to. And so what we can do with that is we can, whatever the research question is, so one of our research questions now, for example, is does air pollution predispose or worsens the outcomes from a pulmonary infection? Mm-hmm. And so what we can do is using this atmospheric uh, simulation reactor, ASR for mm-hmm. short, mm-hmm. Uh, we are able to titrate the amount and the types of air pollution to simulate what is ambient 
normal street level for Torontonians, for example, uh, and compare that with filter air control. Mm -hmm. And then we can then, you know, uh, initiate the infection and we can subsequently measure outcomes. And that's very discreet because you can you can answer the question is of, you know, what happens when you have pollution versus no pollution mm-hmm. uh, or in pollution without infection, pollution mm-hmm. with no infection and what the outcome metrics are, mm-hmm. which is looking at lung function and, you know, illness score. That is very, uh, I don't want to use the word easy, but it's 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 much more controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, what's much more difficult, obviously, is looking at it in, in people. There are a few places where one can conduct control exposures in humans, but obviously, you know, there are some some limitations in terms of what mm-hmm. you can, what you do. You, you you typically a lot of these exposures are one time only, usually with concentrations that are mm-hmm. higher than ambient. Because mm-hmm. and so the other level of looking at it is looking at it from a cohort or a population level, and then it is based on whatever. Is happens in real world. Mm -hmm. And the way that we try to control for that, or we try to answer the question better, for example, in the Fort McMurray study, is that we are conducting pollution analysis in the indoor environment and the personal environment of the participants whom we're studying. And we're also collecting at the same time biological fluids so that we can Mm -hmm. tie together the exogenous level of air pollutants Mm -hmm. with actually what's endogenous. And obviously the you know, the hypothesis is that whatever is absorbed mm-hmm. uh, systemically is what causes harm. Yeah. And and that sort of question is really important to answer, but mm-hmm. obviously takes a lot longer. Yeah. Um, it is not as clear cut. We have to take a lot of different, um, you know, confounders and a lot of other things into consideration when we do things like that. And that's sort of where the biostatistics and the expertise of other people are really important in terms of making sure that we have the right sample size um, Mm -hmm. to to answer the question that we want to answer. Uh, And I remember from a while ago now that we had sat down for that interview for the magazine, (laughs) you had mentioned one of the ways that you study exposure to various pollutants is you give uh, participants a pollution a personal like pollution monitor and it just captures all the different air particulates that they're exposed to and we were actually wondering we were thinking it would be great for a segment for this episode to have if possible wear this pollution monitor for a day and then maybe see what she was exposed to I don't know how realistic that is or well no I, I think that's possible I think the other the other way the other um, way to do this and this is um, a new method that we've adopted and mm-hmm. this is from going back to your previous questions of sort of how do you find col- or how, how do collaborations you know occur mm-hmm. is you know obviously by talking to people but one of my collaborators in arts and science mm-hmm. um, has been doing a number of studies looking at uh, cell phone wipes Ooh. Uh, and um, <laughs> and if you think about sort of what sort of thing is the best monitor of personal exposure, <laughs> um, yeah. we are now never without our cell phones. And uh, we wash our hands, but we don't often wash our phones. And there have been a number of studies now, and Miriam Diamond is one of the people who's been leading some of this, to look at cell phone wipes, to look at what the 
what the chemical composition is to give you an idea of sort of what you've been exposed to over time. And I, that, that we would certainly mm-hmm. be uh, open be to that. <laughs> the, the other thing that uh, Miriam is doing that we to adopt for the Fort McMurray study is silicone wristbands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the silicone wristbands also, you know, on your dominant hand is cl- obviously exposed to what you're exposed to. And, mm-hmm. and so we're able to also do some analysis with those. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and we certainly would be open, open to, to, that. To, to that. Great. Maybe we can discuss some details further uh, after this. And so just wrapping up and maybe going back to our very first question around the effects of air pollution on population health. So what would you say the implications of your work is on, on public health and on policy? I think that it's difficult to translate policy from animal studies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, it is a lot easier to look at epidemiology or look at some of the other population studies to look at the health. And I think what's important about the Fort McMurray study is the fact that these are, on the whole, young, healthy mm-hmm. Canadians with young families who are generally healthy. And they chose to return to Fort McMurray because mm-hmm. they want to continue to live there. They, their families are there. That's, that's home. And if there is even a small increment of disease that develops in this otherwise healthy population, mm-hmm. it has huge implications in terms of Canadian economics because mm-hmm. it has a lot of implications in terms of social, economic, as well mm-hmm. as health burden. And, and so for that reason, I think it's really important that we study that. But I think it's also mm-hmm. very, it's a unique opportunity because of its isolation is that there, you know, there are other wildfires, and I'm sure that you know whatever we study mm-hmm. in Fort McMurray will be applicable. But to find a population in Southern California, for example, mm-hmm. um, in the interior of BC, yeah. that is so settled, and to be able to sort of follow them over time, yeah. I, I don't think that it's really possible to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it, it will become even more challenging. I mean, there are yeah. obviously a lot of challenges <laughs> in terms of doing research um, mm-hmm. so far away, yeah. uh, but but I think it would be even more challenging to look into a, a geographic area where people are able to move and live one, two hundred kilometers away. There isn't that possibility in Fort McMurray. Yeah. There's a whole added layer of complexity when you're looking at more dense populations. Yeah. So I think maybe that's where we'll wrap up. And uh, thank you so much for sitting down with us again. I've definitely learned a lot more than I had preconceptions about in terms of pollution. And I wish you the best of luck with your Fort McMurray study. It sounds like an incredible opportunity. And maybe we'll hear an update (laughs) when it's done. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Next time on the show, Melissa sits down with Dr. Samit Gupta to discuss how his work assessing the cost of treating childhood cancer can influence policy, both here at home and abroad. What a lot of people find counterintuitive, and it's a good news story, right, is that the burden of childhood mortality attributable to infectious disease in low-middle-income countries has dramatically descended over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Um, And if you think about it, the leading cause of disease-related death in children in North America is cancer. So that's the natural state isn't the right word, but, you know, when you take infectious disease out of the picture or predominantly out of the picture that's the next cause 
Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. All the mentors that I've had, the one that I, you know, have held in highest esteems are the people who have always maintained their integrity while at the same time conducting their clinical duties and their administrative or their research duties.